everybody. Welcome to another episode of Planet Profits Podcast. Our guest today is Josh Heil, founder of Citizen Mint, an alternative assets provider based in the Seattle area. Josh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Joe. So excited to be here. Nice. Um, so, Josh, tell, tell me a little bit about your background uh, and uh, tell me a little bit about uh, Citizen Mint, which is, which is your company. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, so just to give you a quick overview of my background, I've been in the investment world for over 15 years, started my career at Deloitte uh, for a few years, and then uh, quickly switched over to Russell Investments and was at Russell for six years, helping big pension and 401k plans with their investing, and then uh, left to go to a large wealth manager in the Seattle area, which was about $16 billion in assets. And I was the director of investments there for five years, helping clients uh, invest in both the public equity sphere, but also the private sphere. And uh, we had a big uh, focus on impact and sustainability there, which really led me to where I am today in starting Citizen Mint. What I saw, because we had a big trust business, in, is next-gen clients and a lot of clients in general wanting to have more impact with their assets, wanting both financial returns and maximization of those, but also wanting uh, to do good in the world. Um, so left uh, Laird Norton, which was the firm, and um, jumped out to start Citizen Men. And I think it was always one of those things where entrepreneurship was something that was eating me inside uh, and something that I really wanted to do and um, also do something positive um, with my uh, what I'm doing from a work um, standpoint. Cool. Very cool. So um, talk to me about the name Citizen Mint. Where did that come from? Yeah, no, definitely. So when we were thinking about, you know, naming the company, um, what we really came to the realization of is what we're trying to accomplish. And um, Citizen Mint uh, is really that we're all global citizens. We have these massive challenges um, that we are facing across the world, whether it's around climate change or education, healthcare, uh, housing affordability. Uh, and we need to address these. And it's not going to be the government who's going to come in and solve our problems. It's going to be the use of private capital that goes out to address these opportunities. Um, and so that's where, you know, we're a collective global citizens and mint being another word for money, um, being able to address these problems with our capital. Good. Good. That makes sense. Um, and, you know, what I, what I kind of like about the name is, is this idea of, of pushing power back to the people, letting people know that they have that, that they can make a difference uh, both for the planet um, and then also like the word mint implies, right? I mean, you can be minting money for yourself, um, yeah. hopefully. Uh, well, and, and I mean, that's the thing. It's like it, individuals or firms aren't dumb. That's why there's a lot of capital flying into these specific areas because the opportunity set is so big. You see some of the largest asset managers in the world moving into these, whether it's Blackstone has a huge affordable housing fund that they're raising multi-billion dollars for, uh, KKR, Carlisle, Apollo, every one of these major asset managers is saying, hey, there's an actual opportunity here to make money. And there's a lot of uh, investment talent flowing there. So um, I think you know, everybody kind of sees that, like, with challenges, there's always opportunity. And maybe you can tell me 
just briefly, what sets you apart? Why are you different from why? Why is Citizen Mint different from Carlyle uh, or some of these other um, larger uh, yeah. fund managers? Yeah, and I think for us, you know, we're walking alongside wealth managers to help them and their clients get access to these opportunities that are usually only accessible by institutional investors. And so uh, we're able to, you know, come to a wealth manager and say, hey, you can actually get your clients invested at a $25,000 minimum to start uh, and be able to have real change within your portfolio. And I think that's always been the issue is just this access and accessibility at the minimum size, as well as being able to actually report on these opportunities and say, what are we actually doing? And is this a good opportunity? And should we be investing with um, in this specific opportunity or this specific manager? Uh, and we're doing all that due diligence and understanding, is, are they actually having measurable change or is it a marketing ploy for them? And trying to say, we need managers that we're working with or opportunities that we're doing that is going to have measurable change and be actually impactful. But at the same time, is not going to be detrimental from a financial perspective. We want also really good financial opportunities. Good, good. Um, and you know, as a as a wealth manager, one of the things that I appreciate about your approach with the relatively lower fees, and just so our listeners have some sense, you know, your fees might might be a twenty five thousand dollar minimum. Uh, some of your competitors, just for comparison, we're talking two hundred thousand dollar. Uh, I've seen some alternative asset um, managers that are talking a $1 million minimum, which which has an effect on two levels. I mean, one is there are some people who just can't meet those minimums. A lot yeah. of people just can't meet those minimums. Yeah. Um, secondly, even if you can meet that minimum, what percentage of your portfolio are you now putting into an alternative asset? Uh, yeah. You know, from my perspective, and and everybody's going to disagree about. You know, everybody can have a different opinion on this, but you know, alternative assets, to my mind, uh, should be an alternative. Um, they should not be the overwhelming proportion of your portfolio because they're riskier. Uh, yep. You know, and so for my for my clients, um, I want some exposure to the asset class. I want some exposure to good investments, but I don't want to put fifty, sixty, seven percent of a client's portfolio in alternative assets, no matter how good the investment looks. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's just too risky for the for the vast majority of my clients. Yeah, exactly. And I mean like and we're never encouraging that. We're always and that's what we can say. We can say you can actually, you know, for that, you know, one, five, ten million dollar client, you can diversify across asset classes and across opportunities. And then you get that diversification and you'll get some li different liquidity profiles where you'll be getting money back from this opportunity this year this opportunity the next year after that it's just a great way to like layer in things but also that can reduce volatility within the client's portfolio and be able to like hit some of their values and um whether it's income or capital appreciation uh as well as desires absolutely and then that also ties into the impact that you were talking about because if you give more people access to uh these sorts of investments um, and we'll get into you know, yeah. where you see the impact being from a, a UN Sustainable Development Goals perspective. Yeah. But let's let's assume for a second that, that, that there's a positive impact. Um, the more people that you can get their money or some of their money into that positive impact, the bigger the impact gets. Uh, yeah. If it's just, you know, if it's only the 0.1% 
that can do a particular kind of investment, uh, the impact is limited. And if you yep. expand it to the 1%, the 5%, the top, the, you know, the 10% of people who have money, uh, but they're not necessarily billionaires, um, yep. now the, the positive impact on the planet just gets bigger and bigger. Yeah. And we always, we also kind of see ourselves as education to this marketplace because really within this marketplace, there's 5% of people who are like, I'm impact first. That's what I want. And then, but we're trying to draw in, you know, 70% of the marketplace that says, Hey, yeah, I would like to do good with my money, but financial returns are necessary for what I want to accomplish and how I want to live my life. And it's like, well, great, we can do both. And we're trying to bring in that marketplace because that's, you know, where we can really have, you know, the bigger impact from a financial perspective, we can bring in those additional investors who are saying, oh, I didn't know I could do well with my money, but I'm excited for these opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. As, as I always say, you know, the, the name of my firm is Green Investment Strategies. It's not Green Charitable Strategies. Yeah. These are exactly. investments. Uh, they need to earn money. Yes. Um, so with, with that being said, Talk to me about alternative assets in general. Um, you know, why do you like this particular area? Why, why does this particular area make a good investment? And then we can get into a little bit more of the, the asset classes within that. But, but at the general level of alternative assets, uh, explain what those are um, as you understand them and why they're good investments. Yeah, no, definitely. So, um, you know, alternative assets can be anything that's usually not publicly traded. They can also be publicly traded. Like sometimes you might hear hedge funds referred to as alternative assets. We sometimes separate out our language and say just like private market assets. So nothing that's on traditional marketplaces that you can buy and sell on usually a daily basis. Uh, what we like about this space is we think there is more inefficiency within the space compared to the public markets uh, where, you know, price discovery is happening on a daily basis and things are changing on a daily basis, whereas in this space, things are priced um, not as fast, uh, but there's also value creation. And this is usually there is some level of higher return expected within the private markets because of that finding these inefficiencies, having not having that liquidity uh, actually adds a premium. It's called the illiquidity premium. It's just like your money's going to be locked up, so you should get more money because of that. Um, and so there's a lot of uh, different space within that. So private markets could be, you know, from real estate to private debt to infrastructure to private equity, venture capital. And I mean, you can even get into much um, like more opaque opportunities within the private markets. Um, but uh, I think there's just, you can enhance your returns. That's one thing that I think is a benefit. So usually, you know, the returns can be higher. You can reduce the volatility of your portfolio um, by not having it price as much and, you know, keeping things relatively steady. It's not going to have the same swings as the open markets. Um, and also, it's just a great diversification tool for clients uh, and just something where there's a lot of places in private markets that you just can't get exposure in public markets, whether that's like, you know, specific real estate opportunities, like in public markets, you know, it's broader REITs, um, which but they don't really give you the same kind of diversification as might, you might get in private markets. Uh, and also like broader diversification from like geographic diversification or non-correlated assets. What we've seen in public markets over the last few years is bonds and stocks have been really correlated. 
uh, and that hasn't been good for clients' portfolios. And so being able to put something else in there um, that's not going to be correlated with bonds and stocks really can uh, create some stability in the in the client's portfolio. So two things. One, to pick up on your correlation point. The way I like to think about that is, is you want to construct a portfolio with uncorrelated good bets. Yes. So uncorrelated is beautiful, um, yeah. but it's not enough. I don't want to put uh, bad, bad uncorrelated investments yes. into my portfolio. <laughs> yes. Um, it's got to be an expectation uh, that there will be some return, some reasonable yes. return. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, you know, what is, what is, and without getting into specifics, but as an asset class in general, um, and we can call it uh, private market investments, uh, or we can call it alternative assets, um, is there some sort of general return expectation uh, that the asset class tends, has shown over a track record? Uh, or maybe that's too broad. Maybe, maybe it's, uh, subcategories within that have certain return expectations. Talk to, to for our listeners who are wondering, you know, what sort of an investment am I making here? Talk to me about that. Yeah, yeah. So from a returns perspective, you know, we, you know, you're usually this is a broad statement, so take this with a grain of salt. But you're usually expecting like a one to two percent premium at least over your, you know, public market counterparts. And that could be at, on different asset classes. So like, you know, in private debt, it can actually be a lot higher than that, um, that premium. We'll be, we'll, be, like, we'll be conservative. Conservative is good. Yeah, yeah. But one to 2% is like usually the expectation after fees uh, that where we can say conservatively that that's a good, and then depending on how much risk you're taking within private markets, you know, that can expand pretty dramatically. Um, where, you know, if you, you are willing to take more risk, um, then, you know, you can get up to those 10 to 15% above um, the, like, what would be considered traditional markets. And I would consider, like, long-term stock returns, you know, around 8% is probably where they're going to come in. And long-term bond returns, you know, over the last 10 years haven't been great, uh, but, like, long-term, let's say, 3 to 5%, depending on the market environment. I would agree. Okay. So the other thing that jumped out at me from what you were saying was you were saying that you like this uh, asset class, private private markets, because there are uh, inefficiencies. It's, it's a less it's a less efficient market than the public market. Yeah. And you know, not all of our listeners are going to be uh, fund managers, and and so I think let's translate that a little bit for our listeners. When I hear you say that, what, what I think that translates into is in the public markets, because they're so efficient, um, often you can just buy an index fund and expect to get a very reasonable rate of return. Yeah. Um, and it's difficult to find, it, it, you know, the more efficient the market is, the more difficult it is to find a fund manager who can outperform the market as a whole. Yeah. But when you look at a different kind of market where there are inefficiencies, now I think your active management um, is important. Uh, the person making, the fund manager, uh, the person making the investments, the team making the investments, um, that matters because in this in this asset class, you can't really buy an index. Uh, yeah. Can you? No. 
No. Right. You get that like people have tried to construct things that are similar, but they just the correlations haven't been that great. Yeah, and they tend to construct fund to fund, which uh, ends up somehow being the worst of all worlds. Yeah. Uh, in in my experience. Yeah. So, so so talk to me now. Let's get a little more specific. Um, and uh, you know, talk to me about your your sort of subcategories within me. So. Uh, where do you see the opportunities? Might be a better way to ask the question. Where do you see the opportunities within private markets? Yeah, so we we've been spending a lot of time on things that are more defensive within private markets. Um, so you know, people when they think of private markets, they probably think of private equity first and venture capital. We've stayed away from that at the current point in time and have been a little bit more defensive. We're kind of waiting for the venture capital cycle to play out. Um, there's was a lot of bad decisions made within that specific asset class over the last few years. So, And we think it's just a tougher environment for that specific part of the sector. Now, going forward, it looks interesting um, you know, with like valuations coming down. Um, but private equity is probably the number one that people think about. And private equity is in a tough place right now, from my opinion. Um, so, you know, they they have a lot of leverage on these companies that they're buying and trying to fix up and sell again. And so, you know, the ability to make money on that is really difficult when you have interest rates as high as they are and how much people are charging them. Um, so we've decided as a firm to be more defensive. So where we've found defensiveness within the specific market environment is in multifamily real estate, um, farmland, infrastructure, private debt. And like for multifamily real estate, um, like just to point that one out, it's like affordability is a huge issue within the US and uh, people can't afford just single family homes. So what's that going to lead to? It's going to lead to people renting for a much longer period of time than we might have expected. So that's going to mean demand for multifamily real estate is continue to be high. Now, within that, it's like finding affordable housing is incredibly defensive, especially when you think about the market environment. So if we go into a recession, people usually downgrade or might want lower cost housing uh, or people just don't move from lower cost housing to higher cost housing. So that is just a very defensive part of that marketplace where you're always going to have people wanting lower cost housing and um, people to fill it compared to like luxury housing, which usually performs very poorly in those type of market environments. Now, farmland is similar in that um, it's never going to be crazy returns. Let's let's stay with multifamily for one second. So talk to me about supply and demand in that area, meaning that, you know, I think some people think that the the advantage of investing in single-family real estate is that uh, they're not making more land. They are making um, more single-family homes, but uh, not in the supply. In other words, isn't it easier to build uh, more units more quickly with multifamily? Uh, doesn't doesn't that um, pose a risk of it being uh, a a more aggressive investment. Where do you see supply and demand in that space in America right now? Yeah, I mean, like the the issue is the cost of a mortgage has doubled for the last uh, two yeah. years, and so it's like people who might previously have been able to afford um, six to eight hundred thousand dollar home 
can't anymore, or they have to have a, a much bigger down payment <clears throat> or make more money. Uh, so they're probably going to be renting multifamily for a much longer period of time. At the same time, essentially, if you've looked at like the permitting numbers or the ability to um, like get financing for multifamily projects, it's decreased dramatically this year. Um, so there's not going to be much supply coming online after 2024 because nobody can build. Um, like this is the issue with interest rates and especially the regional banks have essentially stopped lending um, to even multifamily builds. So you have like supply like going off a cliff and you have demand increasing at the same time. Um, so it leads to this like environment where there's going to be like much higher demand for what's in the market at the current point in time. So anything that, that can like a good get, investment to me. I, exactly. That's a, I think people like, it's like regional banks honestly have stopped lending. Um, they made a lot of bad loans the last couple of years there. They have capital requirements by the federal government where they can't lend any more money out. Um, so they like, it's like, if you can get a project off the ground, have it deliver in 2025, 2026, you're in a pretty good place where you're going to have high demand and low supply. So, so now that that gets at some of the you know the return expectations with multifamily. Let's yep. talk about impact in that in that yep. asset class. Uh, it seems to me that from a climate change perspective, uh, your carbon footprint, your your negative impact on the planet, uh, it's much less in multifamily housing. It seems to me that like from a society standpoint. That's kind of where we need to, need to be headed um, if we are going to keep the planet from getting too hot. Uh, what's your take on that? Yeah, no, I think it, it, it depends on the specific area of where they're building and how thoughtful they are around the building requirements. Um, one of the things that, you know, like in the Seattle area, just this is just one example. And I'm sure it's the same on most like big cities. They have significant requirements around sustainability, you know, heat pumps within the building, uh, thoughtfulness about permeable surfaces, thoughtfulness around insulation and all those things that go into high energy efficiency systems. Um, so it's like when you're building, you're almost building to lead standards, uh, which is like for, you know, it's a new build. Um, and also they benefit from like certain financing for just like, um, like, one of the opportunities that we've invested in the past is uh, they qualify for a thing called CPACE, which is um, a program that provides loans or lower cost loans for anything sustainability oriented, your siding, your windows, your uh, insulation, your HVAC systems, all those uh, where you're putting a high sustainability. So these new buildings um, are going to be probably like 70% more sustainable than older buildings with like for um, because they're not replacing windows. They're not replacing HVAC systems usually. So, yeah. It's, and then the it, other thing it, that comes to my mind when we, when we talk about, you know, being thoughtful about it is, you know, if somebody puts a, a multifamily building in the middle of the desert, that's not going to be very sustainable. But if yeah. they put it, you know, in, in a downtown area near where people want to, work and near where people want to uh go out to eat and, and yep. you know go to go out and drink and, and socialize now suddenly you've got a, a walkable city maybe exactly. you've got a 15 minute city where everything you needed within 15 minutes exactly um, you know so, so and and so as as we as investors as we you know send some capital into that area and we and we make it possible for more of these buildings to be built 
uh, in the right in the right spots, you know, we're contributing in some small way to making the planet more livable. Would you oh, agree? Oh, one hundred percent. And everything we do, like it's on like transit orientation. So, it, like as you said, it's it's near those kind of walkable places where you're walking to your grocery store or shopping center or restaurants, and then you're on a transit center where if you need to get to your job. Your job's usually much closer because these are affordable apartments. So, you know, we're housing those teachers, those nurses, those retail workers who are working within that specific area. So they don't have to drive 40 miles outside the city because, you know, just unfortunately, like Seattle and other cities, like everything's so unaffordable. So like teachers or others who aren't making the same amount of money as, you know, your tech workers are uh, suffering and having to drive farther. So bringing them in, not having them drive. Um, is just a great way from a sustainability perspective. Yeah, and, and the other great thing about that is from an inequality perspective, it's also beautiful because if you look at like how societies have done uh, climate adaptation wrong, you could look at, say, France, and you could say, you know, if you just make it more difficult for a society to um, do things the old way, uh, but, you know, if you, if you jack up gas prices, but you don't remove anybody's uh, necessity to use a car, that tends to fall disproportionately, like you're saying, on the people who can't afford a single family home in, you know, next to Central Park or, yeah. you know, in a, you know, next to Wall Street. Um, yeah. So as we make it possible for average people, normal people to live downtown, um, yeah. you know, we give everybody a stake in making our society more sustainable. Exactly. A hundred percent. Yep. Yeah. All right. So the other, um, moving off of that asset class, you also mentioned you see some opportunities in farmland, I believe. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, talk to us about that. Where do, you, where do you see the agriculture opportunities? Yeah. I mean, farmland is never going to be like just to set expectations. It's never going to be something that's going to be like your home run investment. That's not what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be kind of your steady eddy like you're getting probably um, 50 to 60% of your return from just income distributions from, you know, harvesting whatever you have on that property. And then you get some level of capital appreciation over time uh, from that like underlying asset. Now with farmland, we know we're in a growing society. So like more people, uh, population growth is still happening within the U S and other parts of the world. Uh, we know that, um, you know, there's less arable land over time. That's like, there's less places where you can actually farm. Uh, and this could become an issue in the future. Like if there's certain water restrictions or resources, especially, you know, <clears throat> in some of the places that have water issues like California, but also produce a lot of like California, Arizona produce a lot of um, our produce. Um, so there, that could become an issue in the future. So if you can find good farmland um, that has uh, appropriate water over a long period of time and is producing a crop that is desirable, uh, then it can be kind of a steady um, both income stream for you as well as a steady place within your portfolio to gain capital appreciation over time. Now with farmland, any year could be uh, an up and down year because you know you have different weather and climate issues that can happen um, that, you know, is all farmland is susceptible to. So you have to take that into account. 
uh, but at the same time, over a very long period of time, farmland has produced really strong returns. So over the last 30 years, farmland has produced roughly 11% returns, um, and it has never had a negative year of returns over that 30-year period. So that's like, and I think the data is from 91 to 2022. Um, so you have some level of income, even if like there might be some degradation in the asset value. But I think it was only one year within that where asset values went slightly down, like 2%, but you still made it up in your income. Um, so it has been a very stable investment for portfolios. Um, this is why you see big pension funds um, owning farmland in a large way because they see the long-term capital appreciation of that and um, also just the diversification of farmland. Farmland can still produce strong returns during tough market environments. The reason for that is because it's not discretionary. Like when you're spending on your food, it's not a discretionary expense. You might be spending at the grocery store instead of at a restaurant, but you're still buying food. Um, and so People like even, eat. yeah, exactly. We got, we all got to eat. And I think, you know, for some of the things we're looking at, um, like organic, um, permanent crops, you know, it's, you know, it's also plays into health trends where people want to eat healthier over time and want to, um, you know, and also you just get a, a big pickup in the returns of those and the profit margins. So, I mean, organics is three times, um, the profit margin of say a normal, just like normal crop. Um, and there's certain dynamics to that of like where you can grow organics in the U.S. and where you can't and how hard it is. Um, so if you can find a good opportunity there, it can be pretty compelling. Yeah. And, you know, when that I think that adds to the stability of the asset class, because, you know, who is buying the organic produce? It's people with money. Um, yeah. And, you know, I. Uh, so there's some there's some cushion built in there. Uh, the economy goes up and down. If you've got money, you've got more of a cushion. Um, yeah. So you're still probably going to continue to buy organic. Uh, uh, if you don't buy it for yourself, you're going to buy it for your children. If you have to make sacrifices, exactly. you're going to put them yeah. first. Um, yeah. So it's, a, it's, it's an asset class where it does seem to me like the demand is, is pretty stable. Yeah. And I mean, like even... Um we don't have anything currently, but we've been looking at like timberland investments. And I think in the past people thought of timberland as actually something that, you know, um, you know, you don't want to see a clear cut forest, but given like new practices, it's like actually a very renewable resource that you can utilize. And it's better than a lot of other resources we've seen like concrete, which is much less green, uh, compared to like, you know, building buildings with, um, cross-laminated timber or something of that nature where you can build these more sustainable buildings, have thoughtful timberland practices where you're sustaining the forest over time. And it is a renewable resource that you can utilize. Yeah. I mean, the great thing about plants, you, you know, um, as long as you don't destroy them at the roots, they grow back. Exactly. Uh, you know, so you can, you can, um, you can harvest them, uh, and if you do it intelligently, uh, they can keep growing. Exactly. So, yeah. That makes sense. Okay. What about, you know, you had mentioned uh, that when people, that you think when people typically talk about private assets, 
private equity is the first thing that comes to mind. Yeah. Um, and at another level, I got to say, when I think of private equity, uh, I don't necessarily think of a positive impact on the planet. Yeah. Um, are there any, you know, private equity is, is a really big term. It, it embraces all sorts of investments. Are yeah. there any subcategories within private equity where you think there is a potential for positive impact? Yeah. No, there definitely is. Um, and so, and we've looked at some of those. Um, so one area we've looked at pretty closely um, is companies doing ESOP transactions. And so essentially um, what we, super interesting, you know, it's it, ESOP stands for employee stock um, ownership plan or something. Yeah, yeah. And so um, essentially what they do is they, you know, there's a lot of baby boomers who own businesses right now. Their kids don't want them. Like this is just an issue across the board. And so what they're trying to do is say, okay, I need to sell my business to somebody else because my kids aren't going to inherit it, don't want it. And so you get a lot of tax incentives from the federal government for creating an ESOP. And you can uh, essentially create wealth for your current employees by doing this. And so there's different private equity firms who are going and saying, okay, well, we'll provide the debt for these ESOP transactions. We'll take some uh, potential upside uh, on this particular business, but you're giving the majority of control to the employees. So like 80% or more goes to the employee base so they can build long-term wealth. I mean, those employees will never be able to build that kind of long-term wealth, except for in that transaction. It makes them much more loyal. It makes them... Um, the business produce better. I mean, there's a lot of statistics around like once you're an employee, you you work harder, you think about the business uh, from a whole, uh, and it can create this long-term wealth generation for employees who you know are making minimum wage, a little bit above minimum wage, but also have this part of the business. And so as the business continues to grow, it's kind of like an extra 401k for them. And so once they retire, you know, they have this. Um, like savings that they've essentially done where they can get bought out and have a nice retirement aid. Um, so those are really cool transactions. And like the, the government is both through tax incentives and small business loans are encouraging those transactions. Also, you can buy these businesses for a lot lower um, from an EBITDA perspective uh, because of those extra incentives. Uh, because the, um, you know, when you're selling your business, uh, you just get those additional tax incentives. So that's an yeah, interesting I'm a, part. I'm a huge fan of, of eShop. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think that they they really get at inequality. Yeah. And they do it in a capitalist way, in, in the yeah. best sense of the word. I mean, yeah. you know, when you're an owner of the business, even if it's not a huge piece of the pie, but if, when you're an owner of the business, now you have a direct stake in that business succeeding. You're going to oh. work harder because it's, it's your business. Yes. Um, uh, and so I think that's beautiful. It also gets at the whole outsourcing problem. If, yeah. if the employees own the business, they're not going to send that business to India or China uh, where something maybe can be made for slightly cheaper because they'd yeah. be sending their own job away. Yeah. Uh, so that so you know employee owned companies tend to be much more local, yeah. uh, and um, you know and then and then so so you've got like so many positive things you've got the 
increased productivity, uh, I've read some statistics that they tend to be more profitable. Um, mm. They they have a positive impact uh, yep. on income inequality. Uh, and yet, and, and here's the rub, um, they're, they're not easy to find. They're not easy to access. As an investor, how do you get access to that, to that cliff? I'll tell you that it's difficult to find. And so when I see an opportunity, um, I get excited about that. It's not a common opportunity. It's a good opportunity and an unusual one. Yeah. There's only a few managers who actually do it. And, um, you know, because it, it does take a lot of legal work with the business owners and, you know, getting them to understand, you know, the benefit of transitioning that way. Um, and it's a lot of knocking on doors of these small business owners before they sell to, you know, a bigger private equity firm or a large aggregator who's going to, you know, buy the business and then consolidate it into their main headquarters and just get rid of that whole plant or whatever they were doing in uh, probably a small town. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> but, oh, cool. and then beyond private equity, kind of one of the areas that's connected to private equity is on the, the private debt side. Um, you know, who might be funding some of these. And what we've seen there is um, a lot of actually pretty interesting opportunities to invest in like sustainability oriented businesses where they're providing debt to those businesses. And they might be taking an equity stake at the same period of time um, where, you know, it might be a new solar developer or somebody who's making batteries or somebody who's doing biogas facilities and where you can invest in the sustainability portion of it, you get some equity upside in a lot of cases, um, and you're still getting really strong returns, usually uh, in that 12 to 14% net IRR range, um, which is another place where we found super interesting. And there's just a lot of new businesses there um, with really experienced operators who are very smart individuals who are growing these things very quickly to meet a market demand, like batteries, big market demand solar, big market demand, uh, biogas, and all these other things that are now make sense from a cost and technology perspective, um, they're starting to come to fruition where it's like the costs have come down enough and the technology is good enough to produce like what it needs to to make the business pretty viable. And two things here. When you say uh, private credit, um, you know, you're talking about making loans to these businesses, uh, and yep. maybe not just loans, there could be loans with an, an equity uh, kicker as well, an equity yep. component. But at the, at the very least, we're talking about what you're making, you as the investor, going in with other investors, part of a fund, making loans to uh, various businesses in the, in the solar space or the biogas space or, or, or the wind space or whatever it might be, correct? Exactly. Yep. Yeah. And then, and then the other thing there is, um, the impact potential is arguably much bigger than in public market investment. Because in the public oh, yeah. markets, you know, you're trading on the secondary market unless you're buying in an IPO. Uh, the money is not going directly to the company that you invest in. Um, yep. You're having these sort of secondary effects where, you know, maybe the manager's compensation is tied to the stock price, but they have an incentive to make their investors happy. Uh, maybe you've raised or lowered the cost of capital, depending on you know mm -hmm. how many people are investing in a particular industry. But with with this stuff, it's much more direct. You're giving a solar panel company the money to hire more employees to buy more solar panels. Yep. Um, 
so your, your impact is, is is much bigger. Would you agree with that? Oh, 100%. I, I believe that like, and it, it's so much more direct. And it's additional. Because like for what you said, you know, when you're buying just a big company, they've already scheduled out their next three years of plans. When you're doing this for a um, like specific uh, investment, that's additionality. So you're adding more solar to the market, you're adding more wind to the market, biogas energy to the market. And so you're actually having a very direct impact um, where you're reducing those the carbon necessary uh, within that environment. Awesome, awesome. All right, so we've been talking for a while, so I'll, I'll bring it to a close. Um, let me finish with a, a question that, uh, that I will admit that I have stolen from a, a podcast that I like myself. Um, uh, shout out to Pitchfork Economics, which I believe is also based in the Seattle area. Uh, excellent economics podcast. And they always end by asking their guests, why do you do the work you do? So that's my question for you, Josh. Why, why, what is it about this? Why do you do this work? Yeah. I think it's there there's multiple aspects of that and I think that but the two main ones is one you know financial security for individuals I mean it's same with you Joe like you know financial security for individuals and letting them do what they want to do with their lives and you know what meaning it is meaningful for them we can help with that at the same time we can also solve or help solve some of these massive issues that we're facing so my kids uh, hopefully don't have to have detrimental impacts to their lives and their kids don't have to have detrimental impacts to their lives. And, you know, we can have like, you know, that positive difference when, you know, we look back and say, okay, I did something meaningful with like my life. Uh, I helped individuals, I helped others. Um, and like, I had like that positive impact. And, you know, my kids also get to see that, that like, I'm doing something meaningful. It's like I drove by like a solar facility like in Eastern Washington and my son was like, dad, did you create that? And I was like, no, but we're trying to create more of those. Um, so like he understands, like I've never told him what I've done, but he just gets it. So just a really, and, and that's just like cool experience as a dad to know that they're doing something. Right. Well, my, my dog is uh, bringing this podcast to a close. So. <laughs> Uh, let me sign off. Uh, let me just say I, I really appreciated talking with you, learning more about Citizen Men, um, uh, learning more about yourself and your background, uh, where you see the opportunities. Uh, so, Josh Heil from Citizen Men, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Joe. Appreciate it. All right. Take care.